Hi everyone, welcome to the Solar View podcast. My name is Tom Miller and I'm the editor of Solar View magazine. And today we have a very special feature. It's a live panel discussion called Debating the State of Storage in 2019. And it's the first installment of a new educational series between Baywa RE Solar Systems and NAPSEP. We had a great discussion and a really big audience who tossed a lot of questions our way. Way more than we had time for, actually, so we might be doing a round two of that discussion at some point. But we've got more content in the Baywa and NAPSEP series coming soon. We'll be covering topics like PVO&M, rapid shutdown, design platforms, quality management, and more, so stay tuned for that. So let's get right to the discussion. Our moderator today is NAPSEP board member Del Jones, and we have Barry Cinnamon from Cinnamon Energy Systems, Magnus Asbo from Solar Edge Technologies, Blair Reynolds from SMA America, and Spencer Fields from Energy Sage. It's a great discussion, and we hope you enjoy it. If you'd like to watch the video or read more about storage and batteries, head on over to our website, solar-distribution.com, or just Google Baywa, B-A-Y-W-A, and distribution, and you'll find us. And note that we're also running a battery promotion right now. You can get up to $500 off per unit, so head on over to the Baywa store to check it out. As always, please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us, so we'd really appreciate it. And we're also now in Stitcher and Spotify, so go check us out there as well. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and enjoy this State of Storage 2019 discussion. Thanks, David. Appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to to some really good questions. And we've got our esteemed panelists here that hopefully, if we can't answer the question, we'll try to figure out a way to, to get you the answers you need. Um, my name is, uh, David said, is Dell Jones. I've been in the industry since 79. I forget the math on how many years that is, but uh, back when uh, photovoltaics, we used to jokingly call it potentially viable, and it was $70, $80 a watt, and everybody knows now it's much less expensive. And I think the trend now in energy storage and, and battery options, the chemistry, the capacity, the useful functions of batteries are, are really, as David said, coming to a forefront. And especially in what we're seeing now in California, this week, especially what's going on in California with the fires, public safety, power shutoffs, you know, there's a lot of people that are asking, I live in Florida, people are asking me, what can they do during hurricanes? What do those people do in California with the shutoffs? So it's really on the forefront of a lot of people's minds as to what, you know, what, what do I need to do? How do I size it? How, what chemistry do I use? What, what's the best answer? So I'm going to throw a question out to Barry first. Uh, you're out there uh, on the front lines. What are, what are customers asking you, Barry? I mean, what's, what's the driving, you know, thing, the single or a couple of things that they're really asking about? Well, a couple of the things they're asking about is they don't need these candles anymore. <laughs> <laughs> They've got a good backup system, but uh, but also just uh, thanks to Baywa and NABSEP for being so prescient about these California blackouts. When this thing was planned, uh, we were these were just threats, and we've had two or three just over the last month. Um, so what what customers really are um, what helps the customers the most is careful design of the system. Um, the, I would say the one recommendation is not to put too many things on the critical load panel. Um, and the other thing that, that we've been doing is to prepare for these public safety power shutoffs. So what we did is we, we pushed out to our customers an update using the, the systems that we've got deployed so that we can bring the reserve levels 
from kind of the minimum default, which is 20 or 30% up to 80%, in some cases, 100%. So I, 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 can, I can summarize the question in no better way than just to read an email we got from our first battery customer. Um, he sent this email uh, a couple days ago. Um, FYI, before your update, during the first shutdown, our backup only lasted until about 2 a.m. After your download, this is a download of the update where we raised his minimum reserve level up to 80%. After your download, our backup remained on all night until the sun came up and recharge began. We were impressed by the way the system performed through the entire shutdown after your fix as we were essentially off the grid. So the customers were really happy that it worked. Um, we had several customers with CPAP machines that didn't quite make it through the night and uh, we increased the backup levels for those customers um, for the next blackout. So they're really happy. Oh, good, good. Hey, Magnus, let me, let me ask you, on the utility side of things, um, you know, changing from sort of the crisis to, you know, from a utilities perspective, what are you seeing that utilities are interested in understanding, learning, what are they probing on, and, and you know, what sort of, you know, financial incentives are there available for, uh, you know, individuals using their batteries for the benefit of the utilities. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, first of all, I'd, I'd like to say that I think that uh, uh, California and the SGIP program is probably the first to actually uh, explicitly now say that uh, energy resiliency is a, uh, a goal of, uh, of providing a subsidy. So this is, uh, this is uh, if not unique, at least very rare, especially given the size of it. Um, having said that, we're seeing uh, the utilities get involved in behind the, uh, uh, the meter storage on a global basis. Um, here in the U.S., there's a huge diversity of different programs that are in place um, uh, where the, uh, the utility is providing incentives for people to, uh, to do in installation. You know, here in California, it's very clearly through the SGIP program. Uh, the National Grid program is uh, providing a, uh, um, a connected uh, system uh, subsidy where they will pay you uh, as much as $225 per kilowatt every summer season to use your battery, which is very generous. Um, what we're seeing in terms of the utilities becoming involved in providing uh, um, a subsidy is, is pretty uh, 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 commonsensical. The more value they can extract from the system, uh, the more generous the subsidy is. So, for instance, the National Grid uh, subsidy is very generous indeed because they do intend to use that uh, uh, that energy to to uh, try to support their grid, you know. Whereas at the other end, uh, in the case of, of uh, uh, the, uh, the the situation in Hawaii, where they've uh, imposed a zero export uh, limit, which they're modifying somewhat, but uh, you know the uh, the incentive that's provided to the homeowner is simply that you get to use your solar at night. Um, but at the same time, HECO isn't able to do much with that ener energy because they don't have the communications infrastructure. So as communications get in place. Um, and as the utilities figure out how to make use of the behind the meter uh, uh, energy, uh, they are providing uh, generous subsidies. And uh, we are in contact with um, dozens of utilities at the, this point who are doing uh, studies on the topic. So you should expect to see uh, a greater rollout of, uh, of utility interaction and uh, residential behind the meter. It makes a lot of sense for the utilities to get involved at this point. So that's good. Hey, Spencer, let me ask you from Energy Sage. You know, you're getting a lot of inbound inquiries from customers. That's just the nature. Of um, you know, what 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 sort of traffic are you seeing around 
battery storage and natural disasters and you know outside of california you know we know that that's on the forefront of people's minds but in other regions where you've got uh hurricanes where where i am on the east coast uh you know what what activity are you seeing regarding customers inquiring on batteries on your website yeah absolutely all great questions um you know in uh, the, the short answer is yes. We see an increase in uh, visitors to our website in general and to our energy storage content specifically, as well as we see an increase in our overall registrations on the Energy Sage marketplace following natural disasters. So in the past, as, as you mentioned, Dell, uh, that's primarily been hurricanes in the southeast. So you can think North Carolina, Florida, or even Texas. But in the wake of the wildfires in California, as well as the public safety power shutoffs, we're seeing a, a really big spike in terms of, um, again, website visitors to our storage-specific content, as well as in overall registrations in California. You know, the week of the first um, power shutoffs, October 7th, the registrations from PG&E's service territory on Energy Sage actually doubled um, from what we see we see in other weeks in 2019. So I think, again, that really speaks to people's uh, increasing awareness of, you know, the role that energy storage can play um, and solar plus storage can play in resiliency for their homes. In terms of sort of where the residential energy storage market is and where it's going, I think, um, you know, obviously California is the leader nationwide in the residential energy storage market. So um, according to SEPA data, uh, there was 175 megawatt hours of residential energy storage deployed in 2018. 57% uh, of that was in California, about 20% of that was in Hawaii, about 8% of that was in Vermont, and a, you know, a little less than 8% of it was in Arizona. So with just those four states, you're looking at 90 to 95% of the, the residential market. Um, and I think you know, who those states are uh, play a role in, in helping understand why people are installing, whether it's for resiliency purposes um, or because of utility programs like Magnus was talking about, you know, the Green Mountain Power program, the pilot program has been incredibly successful for a, a company with 220,000 residential accounts to uh, be, you know, the fifth largest utility in terms of deployed residential energy storage is, is really impressive. And then also, you know, responding to, to new utility rates, whether it's um, time of use in California or it's, uh, it's zero export in Hawaii. So I think taking a look at sort of where the storage is being uh, installed nationwide gives you a sense of why it's being installed too. Right, right, good. Yeah, I think it's really a getting down to a use case. You know, some people want to do it for that assurance and the safety and the backup and knowing that there's power. And then there's other economic drivers. And usually economic drivers get into some regulatory and uh, and policy changes. And so, Blair, when, when you look at like, you know, we, we've certainly seen the power shutoffs in California as being a driver for the inquiries for battery storage. You know, on the in terms of the economics on the behind the meter storage, you know, what sort of regulatory changes do you think are needed to get a, a larger impact in improving those economics? Because again, you, you, I used to tell people like, what's a glass of water worth? Not much unless you haven't had a drink in 30 days. So, you know, when you really get into storage, you know, what are some of the economic drivers and what are the regulatory entities that would be pushing for those uh, incentives or those drivers where, where the utility might uh, be involved in economically, you know, change that cost structure down to a, an individual homeowner? Yeah. 
Great question. Um, when we look around the world and we see, you know, where, where are the economic drivers for this type of technology? Uh, it tends to be in places where the economics for pure solar PV generation are either being diminished or non-existent at all. Um, so first and foremost, it's in, it's in markets where, where your, your, your compensation for your generation is less than the retail rate of electricity. And uh, we've seen this happen all over the world in markets that have been primarily driven on feed and tariff models, um, where you're, you're compensated for your entire export, not just your net over generation. We've been very fortunate in the U.S. market that we've grown up on this policy called net metering, where we've essentially been, been utilizing the, the grid as a battery. I mean, we store, we store excess PV generation on the grid, we get credited for it at a retail rate, and then we can use those credits uh, to offset electricity purchased later on in the day. Uh, so that's been a really great policy for, for driving adoption of, of solar PV, but we're definitely seeing those, those net metering policies changing. Uh, time of use billing structures are becoming very prevalent. What, what we looking forward in a few years in the future, what would really make the biggest impact in terms of regulatory changes, things like daily demand charges. Uh, could could certainly help drive the increase of, of adoption of, uh, of of energy storage grid tenanted energy storage. Um, additionally, when we look forward a few years, we're seeing the ITC uh, becoming less and less relevant, especially in residential site systems. So when we right now we primarily charge our batteries almost exclusively with with solar generation, uh, and that's being driven not so much by because that's the most economical way to do it. Usually, it's because that's where we get the full ITC benefit. So I think it's really interesting to look forward a few years and imagine a post-ITC world, uh, how we could increase the economics and, and utilization of this technology uh, by not only charging just from excess solar generation. Um, just to pivot slightly, though, I, you know, it, it, right now, the primary driver for adoption of this technology in the U.S. market is backup power, resiliency. And, and that's actually been called the, the, the Trojan horse. Backup power is the Trojan horse that gets the battery into the home, gets it installed. Uh, but then once it's there, you can do a whole lot more other great things for it to improve the, uh, uh, the stability of the grid as well and, and create additional savings. Uh, a great analogy that, uh, that I think is, is applicable in this case is that of the early adoption of electric vehicles. And Barry, I really liked your uh, email from your customer uh, because I think that really kind of hits this point home. Um, you know, 10 years ago, when electric vehicles first started hitting the market, um, you know, only a very small percentage of the population could really uh, work their lives around a 50-mile-a-day radius, uh, 50 miles of range in, a, in an EV. So we had the automobile manufacturers were introducing these hybrid systems or hybrid cars where they had both, uh, you know, basically two forms of, 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 of uh, uh, two engines in, in the vehicle. Um, nowadays, we're seeing that, that because of battery prices, extended range in EVs, most every auto, major automobile manufacturer has moved away from the hybrid design. And I see that, that analogy really taking a uh, similar, uh, similar effect in uh, energy storage, behind the meter energy storage as well, uh, because so much of that is, is education and how can you can work your life around uh, resiliency in a backup power system and educating your customers like, like Barry did with, in this case trying to find what's that right balance between having a reserve for backup power and, and having the uh, ability to create savings and, and generate uh, additional benefits, economic benefits 
by utilizing your grid tied energy storage system. Yeah, yeah, great. Thank, thanks. I, I think one of the other areas, I think on commercial industrial, I think that some people might be looking at is peak shaving, load shedding. Um, just real quick segue on that before we move into another topic. What, what do you think the, the prospects, maybe Magnus real quickly and Blair real quickly, the prospect of using battery storage for peak shaving, load shedding, do you think that's coming? Yeah, this this is Magnus. I mean, we we definitely are seeing demand for uh, for peak shaving, and that's been in place for uh, for quite a period of time. Um, a lot of the increase right now from from where we sit is uh, also in working those into uh, into microgrids. Um, so we're seeing a lot of uh, uh, you know similar to what we saw in residential, this combination of being able to uh, have resiliency in combination with a uh, uh, being able to uh, do load shedding in order to uh, decrease. Uh, um, uh, those peak demand rates is uh, is uh, uh, is coming more to the fore. Blair, how about you? You think that's about a good assessment there? Well, I'd say it's it's not not just coming; it's already here. I mean, basically, any any tariff structure that has a demand charge component uh, is a is an ideal candidate for a peak shaving or peak uh, load reduction scenario. Uh, I would say that energy storage probably isn't the the best use of that tech for technology for that use case. Probably load reduction, smart load controls are probably the best use of technology to solve that problem, though. Right, right. Good, good. Well, let's move on to another topic. Uh, how, through my career, I don't know how many times I heard it. How do I cut the utility off? How can I just be autonomous? How can I go, quote, off the grid? Uh, every one of our panelists, I'm sure, has heard that so many times. So if, if we had a dollar for it, I think we'd be pretty well off. So on to home whole home backup. Barry, is it a myth to get the whole house off-grid, so to speak, entirely backed up? And what's the real-world scenario? What, what are contractors actually installing out there? Uh, and, 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 and more on a micro level, like what sort of circuits are typically uh, put on that sub-panel and that circuits when they don't have the complete giant system that they could go, quote, off-grid? What are, what are you seeing out there, Barry? Well, in, in the vast majority of customers, it, it's a myth, unless you have you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to spend on, on batteries and inverters. When you're looking at um, installing a system, and, and the reason why a whole house backup is a myth, you got three factors to consider. The first is, what's the energy capacity of your battery when the power goes out? You know, 11 o'clock at night, which would happen here, there might not be a lot of energy left. The second is, what are the startup power requirements of your appliances in the house? So, for example, a central AC may draw 4,000 watts when it's running, but it, it may pull 60 amps when it starts. And uh, the you know, inverters can usually only handle maybe 25. And the third factor is the energy draw of appliances that are on your um, backup circuit. So looking at the energy capacity, if you have a 10 kilowatt hour battery or a 13 and a half kilowatt hour battery, at 11 or 12 at night when the power goes out in these blackouts, you only have two or three kilowatt hours of energy left. That's only enough for maybe two or three hours of appliances. If you double the number of batteries, that's still only four or five kilowatt hours. So you got to be careful. When it comes to the energy draw, then you have to look at how much energy is going to be drawn by the things that are on your backup circuit and you could easily be over five or six hundred watts with fridges and other things that you're running so so you can pretty quickly see that um, if you're careful you might 
last eight to 12 hours, but if you get to be a pig about it, it'll go out faster. So what we do is we're very careful with customers. There's no such, there's, it's not common to have automatic load shedding. Um, and that would be if there's a blackout, you know, these big loads like a AC goes out. So in normal cases, we limit it to four to six circuits. It's a maximum of 25 amps. Um, so we, you know, we give them four or five circuits each at 15 or 20 amps, and that's plenty to get them through um, 10 or 12 hours at night until the sun comes up in the next morning, and then you're ready to go. So it's it's really managing customer expectations for reality. And when it comes to whole house backup, it, it you can do it, but it's going to be enormously expensive. So just sort of adding to that, Perry, the typical ones I've seen are, you know, at least in hurricane refrigeration communications, being able to charge the lights, some fans, some lights, uh, you know, in the house, uh, charge the bat, the uh, cell phones. Is that typically what you're seeing on those circuits? Yeah, it was exact. That's the way we set it up exactly that way. We also always put in one bedroom outlet. And what we heard from three customers is their CPAP machine went out. And, and, and this was a real surprise. They couldn't breathe or they were snoring. And one customer said he had to get out of bed and go into the living room because he was keeping his wife up. So it was a surprise, but that's the reality. Right, right. So it's what you really, really want for that period of time when you don't have power. Good, yep. good. So Magnus, on, on whole home backup, you know, maybe it's, I'm going to ask you about the use cases. So you've got this, you know, inverter and you've got a battery storage. They're, they certainly can enable the battery on power outage. You can draw from the battery uh, later in the day to arbitrage power for on-peak, off Maybe you could go through a couple of real quick use cases or, or configurations of the battery storage and inverter combination. You know, what, what's typical out there for the contractors to say, well, we can do this. Here's the use case. Again, now that we know that the whole house is a bit of a myth, then now how would you best use that battery storage? Sure. Okay. Um, yeah, as, uh, as Barry was saying, and as we've, we've touched on many times, uh, um, backup tends to be the application which really draws in consumers. So, uh, so given taking that as a given, there's a, a pretty broad diversity of, uh, of applications. And as I touched on a little bit earlier, the, uh, we're, we're blessed and cursed here in the U.S. with a diversity of different uh, uh, utility applications. So here in California, we store our energy uh, up until uh, four o'clock and then deploy it in the evening based on the time of use rates. Uh, in Hawaii, there's an awful lot of zero export. In Arizona, we have uh, some residential peak demand charges. Um, and then, uh, you know, we have other, other emerging models that are coming up in, uh, in, in other states, especially as I was mentioning the National Grid one, where they would like to be able to uh, deploy uh, your battery for you. The good news is that generally the, uh, um, the inverter hardware set and the battery hardware set is fairly consistent across those. You need a battery, uh, you need an inverter, um, uh, a PV system to, uh, to connect it. Uh, and then generally for this time of use and uh, uh, peak shaving uh, applications, there needs to be some uh, measure of whole home consumption. So the kit uh, tends to uh, map across multiples. One thing that we do see changing uh, um, is how often you, uh, you know, how large those, uh, those battery systems are. So for instance, in Hawaii, because you have to uh, essentially store everything that you generate during the day, they tend to have uh, um, more uh, uh, more combinations of 20 kilowatt hours or more, whereas in California, uh, where you can still export during the day and, and uh, uh, you know, that's a uh, um, 
uh, it's it's not as as dire. Uh, people tend to go for uh, for 10 kilowatt hours or or in that region. Um, having said all of that, the uh, um, the uh, combination of storage. Um, and backup does mean that there has to be a very coherent conversation, as, as Barry was alluding to, with the uh, with the homeowner about uh, how it's going to be installed. You know what the uh, uh, what are your peak loads going to be? Um, what do you really need to back up? Uh, and uh, you also need to be very clear that uh, the uh, the equipment is important, but uh, doing an installation of uh, of a whole home. Um, backup of any kind involves an awful lot of rewiring, or even a partial home backup requires uh, substantial rewiring. So having that uh, that conversation up front is uh, uh, is useful. Um, having said all of that, um, you know I do think that uh, you know people come in wanting to have backup, and it's a very emotional decision. Uh, and we've seen time and again that people go in, they try to have a uh, a detailed numbers and economic conversation with the homeowner about. Uh, uh, about uh, what the utility is going to provide them, and a lot of times that 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 ju that just goes nowhere. The uh, it is uh, um, it's a very complicated equation trying to discuss seasonality and time of use rates with uh, with homeowners. So uh, uh, the recommendation is to uh, focus on uh, um, we're going to get you the backup that you need, uh, and the utility is going to provide you additional incentives to help. Good, good. And actually, I do want to throw another question out to, uh, you know, the, the inverter guys, uh, Blair and and, and uh, yourself on somebody bought the PV system. It's installed. It's ready to go. They were using it for years and now they decided they want uh, uh, some battery storage. So maybe you could really quickly help uh, people understand what an AC coupled and a DC coupled system is and the use case and and is is it better to start with DC, like I've always been told, and then uh, go to AC only if you have that uh, a PV system already installed? So maybe uh, Blair, let's uh, ask you first. Uh, maybe just quickly explain uh, the difference between, let's say, an AC coupled and a DC coupled system, and then what what is a person generally going to end up doing, adding storage after they've already got their grid type PV system in. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so it's this is one of the probably the number one question. Uh, well, the number two question I would say that um, when, when considering the system design, the first the number one question is what's your what is your use case, and the answer for AC coupled versus DC coupled can be driven primarily by the answer to the first question. What is what is your use case? Uh, AC coupled basically what it comes down to is where. Where, where is the energy storage system actually interfacing with the PV system within the within within the overall uh, electrical circuitry of the home? Um, AC coupled systems naturally tend to be a better fit for retrofit energy storage. That's the, the scenario you were describing about. You have an existing PV plant and you upgrade it with, with adding on a battery at a later point in time. AC coupled tends to be the, the easier way, way to design that system, install that system. You're just adding basically a completely independent uh, battery inverter and battery to an existing PV system. Uh, uh, AC coupled systems also tend to be have uh, a lot more power available during backup power scenarios uh, because they're not sharing the same overhead uh, inverter overhead with the PV, the, the solar PV array. Um, DC coupled systems tend to make more sense uh, for scenarios where you're, you, you only need to install one inverter. Uh, you're, you're kind of pre-planning the design of your system from the get-go to, to include batteries. Um, 
And, and, and so it really kind of comes down to what point in the decision-making process uh, is your customer actually, you know, and what is their primary use case, um, depending on what, 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 which way you would steer them in terms of how, how you inter- interface that energy storage with the PD array. Right, right. Let me, um, sort of jumping back to one of the issues we had before, questions uh, is about the incentives uh, for battery storage in other states. Um, what are, what's, I mean, California obviously is leading uh, out there. We've got some uh, Northeast states that are starting to, to provide some incentives. So what, what's the other, the stick in the mud with other states? What do you think the, uh, the real issue is for rapidly adopting storage? Do you think it's a reticence on the utility or customers just don't think it's for them? And maybe I'll throw this one out to, to Barry just to see what he thinks. <laughs> Oh, you're on mute, Barry. Yeah. Okay, good. It's analogous to the same way that the solar industry itself evolved. Um, there's a lot of interest, but economics kind of gets in the way of that. So um, if, if you can give people favorable economics for a back up for battery storage, it works. The, the explode, I don't, I don't want to use the term explosion. The rapid increase in demand in California is, is governed by another factor, which is emotional. Um, you know, there's flashlights and candles and you can put, you can get dry ice to keep your fridge cold, but people just don't want the emotional issue of being inconvenienced. And you can put a little bit of a dollar figure on that by saying, I got to replace all the food in my fridge or, you know, I can't drive my EV to work. But um, the emotions really are making the biggest difference in California. But I'd say in, until we have blackouts like that throughout the rest of the country, it's going to be economics that are going to drive it. Yeah, Barry, one of the questions I also wanted to ask you, because you had mentioned this earlier about that customer called and you tweaked their system and gave them some more backup. And one of the questions that came in was just, how did you, how did you do that? Um, the, the system that we're using, um, and we're, we're using a solar edge system, but I believe the SMA system has a similar capability, is we can remotely push out um, operating characteristics of the battery and that's primarily designed, I think it was designed originally so you could kind of maximize the benefits of time shifting your electric rate. But what we've been finding it most useful for is we can maximize the duration of backup power when we're going into a planned blackout like we've just had or when we're going into the winter season, which is when that usually happens. And also, incidentally, in the winter, you're not getting as much benefit from the um, time shifting of electrical use. So people don't mind if you go from, say, 20 or 30% minimum battery backup to you know, 70 or 80. Yeah, great, great. So let's, let's move into some battery technologies. Uh, I think Barry, uh, and I have been like old salts in this business, you know, back when all the, all that we had was lead acid or maybe some alkaline batteries. There's such a big shift now to lithium batteries. And certainly I know when people interact, they just assume that lithium, lithium ion, lithium iron phosphates, the lithium family of batteries are the battery to go with. And of course, as we all know, there is the old school, uh, nickel iron. I had some nick, uh, nickel irons in my house for years and years, and they lasted forever. Lead acid, I think everybody's familiar with because they have them for their vehicles and things like that. So let's let's look at like you know what what battery system that's not lead acid based. You know what what's out there now? I mean, I I know there's a plethora of flow batteries and many many different times. Maybe you can give a quick 
uh, you know, highlight player of just how many different types of battery types that are out there that are actually in the market for sale that are just not lead acid. Well, well, the short answer is is not much. Um, according to GTM research, ninety eight percent of the batteries installed in the last year were lithium based. Um, so, so the answer is, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, R and D happening in this space. Um, I would say that that flow batteries are still there's a technology barrier that they're still trying to overcome, a cost curve barrier they're they're trying to overcome. Uh, other high uh, variants of uh, of lithium batteries, uh, sodium ion batteries, these sorts of things. Uh, again, still seeing a lot of a lot of that happening at the university level, the academic level, but really not available out there in the market today. So, uh, to the extent that that you know, li I mean, lithium is is uh, easy to produce, by far the lowest cost of these technologies, um, and is getting a, a huge boost from the electric vehicle industry as well, who've adopted this as their primary uh, battery technology. Uh, so, so to a large extent, the stationary energy storage uh, industry is benefiting from the growth of adoption of EVs and is tending to utilize similar, uh, similar types of chemistries. Um, to the extent that there is a general concern about safety, safety-related concerns related to lithium-ion, um, you know, my, my feelings are that, that uh, those batteries are, are no, certainly no more dangerous than the natural gas line that's coming into your home. Right. Um, and there are multiple layers of certification, product certification from the individual solar cells or the, sorry, the battery cells to the, the battery modules, which are listed to a UL standard 1973. The inverters connected to that are, are listed to UL 1741. And as a whole entire system, now states like California are requiring uh, as a system level, the batteries, inverters and, and energy metering to all be evaluated together to UL standard 9540. And uh, so multiple layers of safety evaluations and checks, including that of the, the, the contractor, you know, have, is a certified licensed contractor as well. I think we just need to become more comfortable that, that uh, these, this technology is, is safe when installed correctly, according to the manufacturer's uh, uh, in, instructions. And if, especially if those, those products are UL listed to be to work together in, in, under the uh, standard UL 9540. And actually, SMA is the only uh, only company that's certified batteries like LG Chem and BYD to UL standard 9540 in conjunction with our inverters. Oh, good. Good. Let me throw something over to Spencer. You know about the batteries. So you know. People have heard, oh, you know, these cell phone batteries blowing up in your pocket and so on. Are you getting questions from consumers of how safe are these batteries? Uh, will they burn my house down? Uh, you know, what, what, what insurance requirements? I know years ago when we were installing a lot of thermal systems, you know, the old thing with if you put holes in the roof, you void the warranty. Of course, we're way beyond that now. But right. battery storage, are you getting customers saying, I better check with my insurance company and make sure I'm allowed to use this? Yeah, you know, there's, there's a piece of it. Um, we definitely see that to some degree, but not as much as I would actually anticipate. You know, I think the bigger, sort of the bigger questions that we have around storage um, and sort of the biggest sort of education gap that we see ourselves trying to fill are misconceptions around, you know, what Barry was talking about in terms of whether or not installing a single battery means that you're now off grid. Um, that tends to be more the area where um, I think there's a lot of room, a lot of opportunity for 
for sort of walking consumers through what actually, you know, in concrete terms, what it actually is that you're getting when you install a battery, what it actually is that you're going to be able to power and for how long, things like that. Um, that's, that's primarily where I see that education gap. Um, I think in terms of the safety aspect, I, I have not seen residential consumers really pick it up as much. And, you know, that's, that's just sort of what's coming inbound to us, obviously in different markets um, or, or to uh, maybe they're, they're talking to their solar installers um, as opposed to coming to us with those concerns. But that's, that's basically what we're seeing. One is certainly good. As Blair mentioned, there's layers of uh, safety and protection and standards that should, you know, make a consumer feel comfortable that we're just not winging it out there. So precisely. Yeah. And I think when you talk to individual uh, manufacturers of energy storage systems, you know, for instance, an LG Chem, right? The LG Chem Resu 10H is, is probably second only to the Tesla Powerwall in terms of residential energy installation, certainly in California, and I'd say nationwide as a whole. Um, and, you know, LG Chem is a chemical company. Their whole, their whole history has been around making safe chemical products. So, um, you know, I think they have that sort of, you know, decades and decades of experience um, in that realm. And, you know, Tesla was making battery vehicles, things like that. Uh, so I don't know if part of the reason why consumers are more um, sort of accepting of this or, or we're not hearing as many safety issues is because a lot of uh, what's being installed in their homes are from recognizable brands. So Barry, on, on your end, are you seeing safety concerns from customers at all on, on your, from your perspective? You know, it's funny, I, I can't recall ever uh, having a safety question kind of bubble up from any customer or any of our salespeople. Um, when, we, when we get the safety questions, we, we usually try and transition it, pivot it to answers about, well, what about a backup generator and the toxic emissions and the CO? Um, or natural gas that you've got in your house. I mean, that, that's really what's creating a problem. And, and when we're, whenever we're doing a demonstration at, a, at an event or a presentation, we bring a gas generator. And all we do is we just push the auto start on that gas generator and suddenly, you know, 90 decibels of noise and smoke going into the room. We turn it off really quickly. But that just customers understand that trade-off really, really quickly. Now, from a safety standpoint, we always strive to install the batteries and you know these are UL listed safe batteries we always try and put them outdoors and we only install s systems and batteries that are coming from major companies that are well engineered where we have the confidence that they did all the testing and then they can back up that testing with you know 10 years of, of support if it ever becomes necessary and actually you know back to I think I uh, you answered that question right up front let me just the, the mythical whole house backup just to sort of set it out there you know an average house 2500 or so square feet your typical home if they did want to go off-grid the inverter large enough to handle all of those loads the battery large enough to handle all those loads and the PV panel and maybe even the backup chinner can you put a quick price tag on something like that just to just to throw it out there you know, I, I, I've got uh, two inverters and two batteries on my house, and it, it probably can only handle half of what I would need if I wanted to run my air conditioning. So, you know, we're looking at price tags that are seventy-five dollars to $100,000. Yep, that's, that's kind of, that's usually the sticker shock that gets them back into the reality of a sub-panel and a critical load. So I just wanted to throw that one out there. So that, along with your that, it's obviously the inverter has to be able to handle you know those those loads you attach to it. So that's a, an important part. 
Um, we also have a question too from a gentleman in uh, Alberta, Canada, and he's uh, questioning, you know, what sort of accommodation do you need for battery storage when you're getting into minus 40 C, minus 30, you know, 35 C, uh, you know, atmospheric pressures, certainly if you're getting into high altitudes. Magnus, what do you think in terms of, uh, you know, the battery technologies, and I'll, I'll put it back to you also, um, uh, Barry and, uh, and, and just what, what sort of accommodations do you have to make if you're going to have battery storage in very, very cold climates? Yeah. Um, the, the good news and the bad news here is that, uh, the battery technologies that we're engaging with, they're, they're very much tracking, uh, what's going on in the EV industry. So, uh, generally there is a capability to provide some, uh, some warming of the battery if needed, but you know, installing in minus 40 degree uh, weather out of doors uh, is, uh, is generally not a good idea. So putting it into at least some sort of semi-controlled uh, environment like a, like a garage uh, you know, with, the, uh, um, uh, with the caveat that you need to make sure that you're not putting it into uh, uh, a space that's gonna violate uh, UL requirements uh, is, is really a better idea. But you're going to end up with the same sorts of things that uh, the same sorts of questions that you're going to run into if you're going to park a, uh, uh, an EV by the side of the road. And, and just as you would uh, uh, with an EV, you're going to want to put uh, uh, your stationary storage uh, uh, in a garage someplace and, and make sure that uh, if it's capable of doing some preheating that you enable that. So you mentioned EVs and, and, and maybe uh, Blair, since you're on the inverter side and you, Magnus, uh, I, I drive an EV. I'd love to be able to use my big battery in my EV as the home storage. I know in Europe and some other markets, they've actually done some work where you have bi-directional EVs. Uh, what do you think the prospects are for coming to America with that sort of technology? Um, the vehicle-to-grid uh, market is probably going to take off more once we have some consensus amongst the, uh, uh, the, uh, the car manufacturers about how you do that. Uh, the problem that we see right now is that there are some companies that have been very uh, um, forward-thinking in this. I think Nissan is probably the most, uh, the most, but you can't have a single solution that works for, uh, uh, for all these different vehicles. Um, so, you know, it's a very compelling technology, um, but right now I think that uh, um, it's probably not going to happen in the near term in, in the U.S. For the, uh, for the simple reason that the, uh, that the majority of cars are simply not compatible. All right, Blair. Do you think it's a technology? To add to inverters are concerned. Yeah, to add add to that, it's it's um in in my opinion the the, the biggest issue. I, I would only ever consider it under 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 today. I would only ever consider this uh, in a in a real emergency scenario. Uh, the problem that you have is you start cycling your your EV battery on a daily basis, like you would with a stationary battery. You're you're reducing your you're ultimately reducing your range. That's what's going to happen. Uh, furthermore, you get into a really complex scenario with the EV manufacturer about uh, the warranty on that battery Absolutely. as soon as you start cycling it for, for your home as well. So, um, yeah, it's, it, I, I definitely think it's coming, but those are the kind of the biggest barriers that we have to overcome is, is uh, you know, universal a, a adoption of, of how we interconnect an inverter to uh, a vehicle that basically to the grid. And then also these, these uh, problems with like warranties, for example. Um, if, if I may, though, go back. You're, you're talking about the, the whole home backup and what does it cost to um, to install a whole home backup system? Again, back to my you know earlier analogy related to electric vehicles. I really think that um, 
you know, this, this whole home backup is achievable, but it really comes down to how you, you know, what your, what your customer's expectations are for a whole home backup. And, and just like we had this hybrid vehicle technology is kind of an intermer- inter- intermediary uh, technology there for a number of years. I see this uh, being, being certainly a way that you can uh, reduce the overall cost of a whole home backup system by introducing a small generator to that system design. The generator's primary purpose would be to simply recharge the batteries, uh, typically at nighttime. Uh, but this way, you don't have to keep throwing more and more lithium, expensive lithium, at your system design. You, uh, but you're, you're able to e- extend your autonomy of that uh, of that backup power system significantly. So, with depending on how you choose to approach your system design, whether or not you're willing to accept some some form of a, a gen set in your system design, I think can really uh, drive down the overall installed cost of your home backup system. Right, right. Good. Well, um, we're getting close to the top of the hour here, so I'm going to move on to some of the questions that came in uh, while we were uh, uh, talking. And one of them was, uh, is there a standard checklist for storage projects that can help in planning and reviewing and permitting, and how much has changed in the NEC allowing 600 volt versus 60 volt for battery systems. So I think this is really more of a, from probably for you, Barry, because you're out there probably pulling permits and getting things. What is there sort of a standard checklist, to, uh, you know, for putting together a proper design? You know, it's, it's, it's interesting that um, we just want to make sure that they're in a jurisdiction that makes it relatively easy to put in batteries. Um, that, 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 key impediments are having good access to wiring in that backup sub panel. And that's, that's hard to characterize without going there and really tracing individual circuits. And we, we, we will usually label this, the circuit breaker panel with the customer there to say, this is what we're going to back up. This is what we're going to back up. And then we figure out how much that costs. And then second, just making sure that there's a convenient place and a code compliant place outside or inside the building to put in the battery and there's new building codes that are restricting that pretty severely so um you know we're going to have some challenges putting two batteries on houses if you can't put it within three feet of a door um, but those those are the two things that we really look at the backup panel and just physically locating the battery good good and um on to something else here that, you know, the percentage of battery storage that are put into residential and maybe even commercial that are coupled with PV system versus storage only. Certainly a lot of businesses for years have had UPS systems to keep their businesses running. Is there a use case or a, an argument that you could compel a customer to say, well, I was going to buy a, a, a UPS system for my building anyway. You know, what can you tell them about the added PV side? So I, I kind of look at it as maybe buy the UPS, get the solar for free with the investment tax credit. Yeah, I, I, I look at it from the standpoint of we're really, we're just at the beginning where we have really good, reliable products that are standardized that can go into commercial buildings. Um, and, and that's the limitation for us. So we're still putting in solar on the roof. And we're expecting that sometime in 2020, there's going to be good commercial products for that. Um, because what's out there now is, is really something that has to come from either the off-grid world or is really customized. And that's going to be, I think, tricky to maintain and support over the long term. 
So real quickly too, Barry, I, I, this is again, maybe in your wheelhouse, what sort of marketing messages, websites, what, what do you want to talk to customers about that really pique their interest? You know, we can, you know, again, I think there's a lot of myths and misconceptions about that. What would be your messaging and recommendation to dealers? What, what, what do you think they should lead with to get the inquiry, to get the business? Um, I, you know, it's 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 a, a ironic question because our, our marketing department that's uh, headquartered in uh, uh, San Francisco called PG&E is already <laughs> making the phone literally ring off the hook. So our, our marketing efforts right now are, are really designed to let customers know up front that, you know, it, it's expensive to put these in. It's going to take us until next year to put them in because we're backlogged and it's not gonna provide whole house backup. So these are almost, we're almost pushing customers away right now instead of really trying to pull them in just because PG&E is doing such a great job of marketing for us. So Spencer, let me ask you, like besides California, <laughs> you know, what other areas where there's a soft market? You know, what, what messaging, what would you wanna be telling uh, dealers, here's what you perhaps want to message and lead with as it relates to storage. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. You know, we, getting back to sort of talking about where the residential storage market is today, although those four states are really the ones that are driving it, when customers register for accounts on the Energy Sage marketplace, they have the opportunity to, to say whether or not they're interested in solar adjacent products. And storage is one of them. And across the board, nationwide, for the last 24 months, three out of four customers that sign up on our website say they're also interested in energy storage. And that's, that's, true, um, that's true pretty much in every state. So you can take a look at, um, oh no, I, I just got a thing saying my internet connection is unstable. So I'm sorry if I'm breaking up. Um, I, you, you can take a look at individual states and it sort of doesn't, the interest doesn't go out, outside the bounds of, you know, two out of three customers to four out of five customers. So people are definitely, definitely interested um, in energy storage. I think from, from my perspective, I, I don't really think that uh, residential customers are um, sort of able to be concerned about the cost of energy storage at this point. Like Barry was talking about, it's an emotional investment. There are certainly places where there are really good um, incentives, but I don't think that they're particularly well promoted. In Massachusetts, there are two utilities, like Magnus said earlier, that are currently offering uh, incentive programs for um, residential bring your own device battery programs. And yet, I don't, I don't know that they've really had anybody actually uh, participate in those programs yet. They're fantastic incentives, but nobody is actually participating or a very limited number of people are participating in them. Um, so I think they're in, in places where incentives exist, it's probably just being very, very clear about what those incentives are and what the payback period for the battery portion of solar plus storage will be specifically. And in places where those incentives maybe don't exist, I think it is very much just the emotional speaking in concrete terms. You know, this is, this is what you're going to get for this long, um, you know, and then potentially moving into the cost after that. But, you know, we, we, see, we see people interested, coming to our website, interested in storage from across the country, uh, whether because they're interested in the technology, in the brand names, in you know the cool new gadgets, or for the resiliency purposes, there there are tons of different reasons that people are coming in. Um, so I think you know there there are a number of different places and, and points that you can make in in beginning to sell storage. I would say. 
So following on that, if people want to be early innovators, they want to uh, get ahead of the market. Blair, what, what, what do you see in the projected growth of battery storage in the resi sector? sector? Is it you have any new well, data? Well, I think we can all, 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 the, all the signs point to hockey stick growth. Um, so so clear, clearly, um, in terms of what, what kind of changes do I see on the horizon as far as technology goes, uh, definitely increased capacity of the batteries. Um, we, we do have a, a, a self-imposed limit in the U.S. of 600 volts uh, for, for residential wiring. So uh, what I am seeing, though, is, is higher amp hour um, cells being, being brought to market, which is actually causing the, the voltage of these batteries to decrease so that we can stay within, the, uh, stay within the limit. So whereas we've seen maybe batteries on the market today in the 400 volt range, I think going forward and looking ahead in the future, we'll see battery voltages actually start to go down uh, as we increase the amp, amp power capability of these. Uh, I don't see any uh, earth shattering changes to the to, or new, new battery technology around the corner. Uh, I think by and large, our industry is, is driven by the, uh, um, the, the, uh, the EV chemistries. So by and large, those are the technologies that will continue to see deployed. I do see an interesting market opportunity for second life EV batteries. Again, there's some, there's some issues that we need to kind of work through about warranties and guarantees and that sort of thing. But uh, I've heard it described as, you know, putting, a, putting an EV battery into a stationary energy storage environment is, is like putting it into retirement. Uh, so there certainly is plenty of usable life in, in EV batteries that have been on the road for a couple of years. We can figure out how to monetize it. Right, right. And um, when it comes to, like, putting in and designing systems, is there, um, amongst all of you, do you have any sort of favorite pieces of software in terms of modeling and presenting the economic values of battery storage for either residential or commercial? Um, maybe we'll just start with uh, uh, Magnus. Um, we're hearing very good uh, um, uh, things about Energy Toolbase. So uh, we've done some partnership with them, and they, they model our equipment nicely. So that's, uh, that's looking very good to us. How about you, uh, Blair? Um, I'm a big fan of the uh, System Advisor model produced by NREL. Uh, it, it does have a, um, it, well, it is a free download available from NREL's website. And it's a very sophisticated tool that you can use to model all sorts of complex scenarios. Good, good to know. So both of those, and then uh, I assume you, yeah, okay. Well, let's move on to another uh, question. Uh, let's see. Uh, let's see, I'm looking at some, uh, this is maybe a random one here. Uh, a friend Ask me about the strip mining implications for lithium ion batteries. Anybody got any environmental impact uh, assessments of, uh, you know, using batteries and what the, the environmental uh, impact is? Well, I, I guess it's better than strip mining coal. I would agree with that. <laughs> Yeah, I would I would caution I would caution this uh, this 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 uh, person. I've seen a lot of uh, fake fake social media posts on the on how lithium is actually extracted from the earth. Um, generally, it's a it's a byproduct of of you know salt mines. It's not a is uh, is environmentally destructive as I've seen it made out to be. Uh, someone just asked real quickly. The um, I think you mentioned that uh, was the InRail software. Could you just state that again? Blair. 
System Advisor Model or SAM for short. Right. So it's a, it's been around a while. It's SAM. Just go on InRail's site and you, you'll be able to find it there. Yeah. And then, and I, I just have to toss one more factor in with regards to exactly sizing the batteries. It's not like there's a continuum that we have with solar panels. You know, we can put in anywhere from say eight to the 88 panels, but basically you can put in one battery, two or three or four. Um, and it, you pretty quickly run into budget issues. So it's, it's, it's hard to be perfect with the exact size matching. So on that, Barry, uh, back to maybe um, the, the panel, if anybody's got some particular expertise, we mentioned about adding on battery storage after you've already had a grid tie system. Now, if you've got a solar plus storage and you want to add more storage, what are the implications there? Um, I, you know, I, I would think that uh, Magnus or Blair would be good at answering that as to how their systems accommodate adding batteries. Um, I'll, yeah, I'll, so I'll, I'll take that. Go ahead, Blair. Thanks, Magnus. Hey, so, um, you know, definitely when we look forward in the future, it's, it's hard to predict what kinds of battery chemistries are going to be predominant, what kinds of, uh, you know, voltages we see. Uh, who the market share leaders are going to be in five years, that's going to be really hard to predict because we're seeing so much growth and expansion in, in this space. Um, our, our approach at SMA is that we've designed our grid-tied energy storage inverters to be extremely flexible. We have a very wide operating DC voltage range from 100, 100 volts all the way to 550, and we can accept actually different batteries from different makes and models, different manufacturers, in fact, can be connected up to the same inverter. Up to three batteries uh, from different manufacturers can be connected to the same inverter. So we've tried to design our system so it is very flexible and easy to add, expand capacity of your batteries over time as prices come down and as more options are available in the market. Great, great. Well, we're at the top of the hour, so I'm going to just ask David uh, how we want to handle this, if we want to uh, maybe field some more questions coming in uh, through email or through that. Um, so in respect of time for the people that signed up for the one hour, I just want to say we're at the top of the hour, but let's uh, continue on if, if uh, the panelists are willing to stay around and we have some questions to answer. David, would you? Yeah, I, do, I do have an email address that I'll give as, as we wrap up. So as additional questions come, as they often do, as soon as you hang up and like, oh, I should have asked, um, I will give an email address before we disconnect so everyone can have that. Um, if our panelists are good, though, this is a fantastic conversation. If everyone's good to stay on, I don't know, four or five more minutes, maybe we keep going. Sure, sure. So, um, David, help me out here. On I've got the Zoom questions coming in, the Q&A. Is that the one we need to start focusing on? Hey, Dell. Yeah, I'll jump in here. Um, you can you can uh, look at the Zoom, but I've been adding most of those questions to our shared Google Doc too, so you can start looking down those. Yeah, yeah, I started looking. Ooh, down I like those. the hundred twenty percent rule question. Can we take that one? Yeah, yeah, that's can a great one. My, the Google Docs on mine seem to have frozen here, so I don't, I'm not getting any updates. So uh, help me out, guys. The, let's let's go with that question. So the 120% rule is, is uh, that's commonly referred to as a, uh, a rule in the National Electric Code that allows you to determine how much backfeed in, in a solar inverter, or I should just say inverter backfeed into a residential uh, main service panel. Um, there is a, so, so tr uh, historically PD system designers would try to uh, 
get as close as possible, if not max out that, that limitation uh, on uh, in the 120% rule so they could get as much solar as possible behind a, behind a meter. Um, of course, that, that does compete that, that, uh, with an AC-coupled energy storage system. Uh, but I'm happy to tell you that right around the corner, uh, the UL standard, uh, well, it's actually a CRD at the moment, but it'll, uh, current limiting control. So this allows us, our inverters, to dynamically adjust their output current so we can set a predefined limit for uh, the total maximum output current across all inverters connected to that, uh, that home's main service panel so that we can actually, through smart software control, stay within that 120% limit and still add more and more uh, power capacity to that, uh, to that home. So that's a, a great new UL uh, uh, standard that's just right around the corner. So any sense of time frame on when that'll be adopted? Well, it's a CRD at the moment. And uh, so, so probably within the next year or so, we'll see it available as a, as a, a full standard. Um, we are using it actually uh, in, in California to certify that uh, uh, AC coupled or, or actually all energy storage systems uh, we can certify that they're being charged only from solar, and this allows us to discharge the energy storage systems to the California investor-owned utilities grid under the net metering tariff. So this is a big change that just came this year in California, and we're using this ULCRD to ensure that our, uh, our equipment is compliant, and I see many more uses from this, uh, from this UL standard in the coming years, the current limiting control standard. Oh, that's good news, good news. All right, so one of the questions I got uh, that came in is, Cal Fire recently placed battery restrictions regarding fire suppression. Can you discuss the recent SCE Southern Cal Ed program where they, are, they will allow selling of NEEM KWH back into the grid? I'm not sure who has some knowledge on that, but... Well, that sounds like two things, right? So, so first of all, um, re regarding the, the, the CAL FIRE, I should say California Building Code requirements, um, yeah, more and more we're seeing uh, the market demanding UL95 certified systems. So complete systems, uh, in inverter, battery control unit, and the battery certified under UL standard 17, uh, 1740, uh, uh, or, or sorry, 9540, UL9540. Um, the, the, the second part of that question was what, what I was referring to. Uh, earlier this year, the California Public Utilities Commission uh, released a framework which allows energy storage to actually uh, discharge to the grid. Previously, we were only allowed to discharge it locally to serve loads on site. But this, under, under the terms of this, uh, uh, the, the, these, new, these new tariff structures, uh, we're actually allowed to, to discharge energy storage to the grid as long as it was... Um, solar that was charging those batteries. And that's what that ULCRD is being used for to certify that that's the case. Great, great. Uh, let's see, maybe this one over to uh, Spencer. What are, what are some of the challenges you're seeing on uh, explaining some of these economic drivers for storage to consumers in areas where economics come into play, the time of use rates, demand charges? So it's complicated. I think all of us would agree. Usually when you start talking about rates and tariffs and things like that, people's eyes, residential customers tend to glaze over. Is there yeah, sort of very a quickly. simple, easy to understand analogy that you can, you can help uh, people understand some of the economics of storage? 
Yeah, I mean, I think in places where where economics are a primary driver, you know, if you're looking at, um, for instance, in California with people who are on TOU rates, um, really what's helping drive that conversation for us is just a, a pretty clear comparison saying um, that if you're installing solar on a TOU rate, these, you know, this is what the payback period is going to be. Um, to get back to what your payback period would have been with solar in California, um, you know, on, on a standard net metering rate prior to the TOU tariffs, um, you would need to install storage or attach storage to solar. That's, you know, based on sort of the modeling that we've done, the modeling that we've seen, that's, I think, a pretty simple story to be telling. Obviously, that is going to depend on the consumer, on the use case, on, you know, the, the load shapes, how you're, how you're um, you know, where you live, what the, what the TOU rate you're on is, things like that. Um, beyond that, I still think that with a lot of the, the economic questions, um, especially as it regards to the incentive programs, the questions then become, well, what, what do I have to give up from my battery in order to be eligible to this, for this incentive program, right? Like if the, if the rebates and incentives from the utility or from the state sound too good to be true, then maybe, maybe I won't have access to the storage, um, to the stored energy in the event of an, of an outage or a blackout or an, a, you know, a grid emergency, whatever the case may be. And so making sure that the, you know, the gap that you're bridging there from an education perspective isn't necessarily about the finances, but it's like a finance adjacent question, which is saying, well, here are the requirements under the, under, um, you know, yes, these, these uh, rebates and incentives are as good as they sound. They will pay for your system in, in X number of years. And these are the requirements. Don't worry, you'll still have, have stored energy available in the event of a blackout. Oh, good. Yeah. Blair, this one's for you. It's, um, you know, we, we have a global audience here. Uh, you know, at the beginning, we already found that people are signing in from all over the world, but let, maybe right up front with the US, um, the incentives for battery storage. Um, I'll go through the easy ones real quick and you can go into some of the deeper ones. The value the value for the, the storage. So we've got the investment tax credit, the federal tax credit. There are certain rules with uh, the Treasury Department on when the battery is eligible for the tax credit. You've got some state incentives and some utility incentives. Uh, maybe you can go through some of those state incentives, what states they're in, and then maybe some of the other value, uh, the added value that battery storage can bring. I would say that's an economic driver or an incentive, but beyond the federal tax credit, what are some of the other um, uh, incentives that we've got that you know about perhaps in North America and even globally? So, so let me position this by first saying with, with all of the benefits that energy storage, especially behind the meter energy storage can bring, we really, we, sh we shouldn't need incentives to, to grow adoption. Um, but in the lack of having policies that allow us to monetize some of that, uh, those features of the, of, the, of uh, behind the meter energy storage, uh, it, it has become necessary. Um, so you mentioned the ITC. Uh, personally, I, I think that the ITC is a, is a bit uh, restrictive on by forcing only the, uh, uh, well, putting um, artificial limits on how you charge the battery. Uh, when you look at some of the utility tariffs that exist today in markets like California, uh, particularly the EV tariffs, you see a tremendous differential between off-peak and on-peak uh, energy. And so you could create a, a really economically viable system by charging your battery at super off-peak power in the middle of the night, 
and consuming that as needed sporadically throughout the day when periods of demand are the highest. Um, and I think that's ultimately, if our, if our goal, if our mission is to solve the duck curve problem, that's one of the best ways to go about doing it. Um, so, of course, we've talked about California a lot. The self-generation incentive pro- program, the SGIP program, has been a big driver uh, for uh, increasing the, the adoption of energy storage technologies. Um, states like uh, Maryland have introduced uh, state-level tax credits. Uh, and a variety of, of sprinkling of, of uh, utilities all across the U.S. have had their own programs and pilot programs and so on and so forth, trying to get comfortable with the technology and, and, uh, by, and so by creating subsidies for their customers that are interested in, in uh, being early adopters. Right. But ultimately, I think that this, uh, these, these types of incentives uh, will no longer be necessary because this, this technology really should just sell itself. Yeah, I agree. I agree. All right, let me let's get to maybe a little another myth busting question. A uh, uh, question came in from Jeffrey too. Uh, what are the duration limitations for battery storage? I've been told battery storage for lithium is often limited to four hours. Is this a cost issue, or their technical, uh, or their technical limitations? Hey, Magnus, why don't you start with that one? Um, there's no technical lim- limitation. It's 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 relatively straightforward. We have. Uh, um, you know, a, a certain capacity in, in the battery, and the, uh, the faster you use it, the uh, uh, the shorter the duration. But uh, uh, if a homeowner is limiting their uh, um, their power needs in a uh, in a backup situation, let's say they've got 20 kilowatt hours of uh, uh, of batteries, and they're only consuming two kilowatts, then uh, uh, they're uh, they're going to be uh, uh, lasting for uh, for 10 hours continuously. And then, of course, the sun comes up and the uh, the system recharges. So. Uh, as long as the homeowner is judicious and turns off their uh, their air conditioning, if that happens to be on the backup panel, then then they can stretch it out. Right, right, good, good. All right, we're going to do one more question. Uh, let's see. Um, hey, Blair, did you want to add something there? Maybe we'll just let you hop in. Oh yeah, if you don't if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah. I, I just I, I heard I heard Magnus uh, mention what I, it's a really common misconception when it comes to how backup power systems are are marketed and sold. Uh, it, it's really not fair to, to say, in my opinion, just wait until the next day for the, so, the solar to recharge your battery. You have to think about the times when, 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 when the grid outages t- tend to occur. And it, it, it usually is around natural disasters in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, stormy weather, winter weather, blizzards, and, and increasingly more and more wildfires. You just can't assume that the solar radiation the next day is going to be sufficient to completely serve the load on the site and completely uh, recharge the battery instead of it'll get you through another night. So that thing, just to be cautious about how we, we position this. Um, and, and then also, Magnus, you're, you're talking about the, really the, the limiting factor being the capacity of the battery, but so, so often is the case with, with backup power systems. It's, it's actually the power capability of the inverter, the surge rating of the inverter. What's it capable of, of instantaneous power that it can actually deliver that's going to determine what kinds of loads can ultimately be powered uh, in a backup environment. And, and, and so frequently, the, the one that I see being um, misconstrued is, is that for uh, a, a well pump, water, water mm-hmm. pumping. Uh, these, these loads tend to have very high uh, inrush current, and most of the, the technologies that I've seen uh, out there being sold and positioned as, as back, robust backup power systems aren't capable of, of meeting that, uh, that, that current requirement, output current requirement. Right. Yeah. 
and and this this is Magnus. I uh, um, I'd, I'd actually agree with that. We do see uh, well pumping being uh, one of the most common uh, loads that we need. Also, some pumping uh, during uh, during power outages where there is a storm. Um, the uh, the application I was kind of thinking of though with regard to suns up is uh, uh, is we're starting to uh, you know here in California. You know, I woke up one Sunday morning and uh, and all of a sudden PG and turned the power off. Beautifully sunny day, uh, and uh, uh, that would be a, uh, an ideal application for uh, for being able to recharge. Having said all of that, being able to combine, um, uh, you know, in, in in the event if you're in Florida or something, and in the event that you want to combine a generator with uh, um, uh, with a, a battery system with solar, um, that's uh, we believe that's a good idea, and we'll be enabling that this winter. And. Uh that's what I do in Florida. Okay, with that uh, said, I think we're going to wrap up. I, I do want to thank the panelists, uh, and especially Blair. He's uh, well into the evening coming from Germany. And the rest of the panelists, uh, it was really good conversation with all of you. I, I would hope that the, uh, at some point we had uh, over 200-plus people uh, and participants. It just indicates a, a real interest in, and uh thirst for more information on battery storage and as we said earlier it's 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 not it's not as as simple as a lot of people think it is it's it's a uh, you know calculating this out and understanding the use cases and design it's uh it really requires a lot of good information i think a lot of uh, a lot of information was imparted on the audience today and i hope everyone really got uh, got their uh, got their money's worth Okay, hope you enjoyed today's discussion. We've got more Baywa and NAPSEP content coming your way. And head on over to our store to check out our battery promotion running now until the end of the year. You can get up to $500 off per unit. So go to solar-distribution.com or just Google Baywa, B-A-Y-W-A, and distribution, and you'll find us. Finally, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a rating on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening, everybody, and see you next time.